0: A number of years ago, when I was working as a researcher, I went to a scientific conference in Phoenix. It was the first time I'd been to this particular meeting. It was relatively small and it was clear that many of the attendees knew each other. The speaker at the first session I went to was excellent. There were a number of insightful questions from people in the audience. It was all going well until a somewhat unkempt man staggered up to the audience microphone and began slurring some mumbo jumbo directed at the speaker. He clearly had spent way too much time at the hotel bar, and I was completely on edge, feeling really sorry for the woman who was chairing the session, a scientist from the Netherlands. She was going to have to shut this guy down and close the session. But as my discomfort was intensifying, I actually noticed that both the chair and the speaker were quite at ease and were listening intently and respectfully to the guy at the microphone. And, cued by them, I paid closer attention and actually found I was able to understand the last bit of his question, and it seemed both insightful and articulate even if it wasn't clearly articulated, if you know what I mean. Over the course of the meeting, I learned that he was a revered senior scientist in the field, but a man who happened to have had cerebral palsy. His mind worked fine, better than fine, but his body was sluggish to cooperate. I found myself following him around the conference to sessions where students were presenting their research, He would listen attentively, ask a couple of probing questions, and then explain to them what their research really meant in the context of the broader field. The man was truly brilliant, but I was prepared to write him off as a drunk, to not only diagnose him as intoxicated, but to see his identity defined by that, that he was no more than a drunk. Cognitive psychologists would say that I was using a heuristic. Heuristic is a term that means a mental shortcut. We use them all the time to make daily decisions quicker and easier. This line at the grocery store is a bit longer, so the clerk there must be slower and we pick another line but we are ignoring the possibility that the people who are in the longer line are regulars who know that the clerk at the line you've just joined is slower than the proverbial molasses in January. We just take the mental shortcut and assume that the short line will be the fastest. These kinds of mental shortcuts make life livable. We make thousands of decisions every day, probably hundreds in the first half hour snooze the alarm or get up take time for wordle or not and if we do what words to pick what to wear from which shirt down to which shoes what to have for breakfast and so on and so on and so on if we did a full decision analysis on each of those our life would come to a screeching halt so habits and heuristics are essential but they can become dangerous when we use them to make judgments about other people. As I discovered when I used my heuristic of staggering gait and slurred speech means alcohol intoxication to dismiss a brilliant and fully sober scientist. The science behind heuristics is relatively new, but the behavior of using a few simple rules of thumb to categorize people as in or out part of our group or other, is ancient. And so it's one of the things that Jesus talked about often, so often, in fact, that it turns out to be one of the topics that Jesus taught about most frequently. We are returning to our series, I think he has something to say, a distillation of the five teachings that Jesus returned to again and again in his ministry. And today we will look at non-judgment. There are, of course, lots of texts from the Bible we could work from, but I wanted to start with one recorded in Luke's biography of Jesus. As background, Jesus has just had an encounter with the disciples of John the Baptist, and when they go, he turns to the crowd and challenges their reluctance to take John and his message seriously. "'To what can I compare the people of this generation?' Jesus asked. "'How can I describe them?' They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. So we played funeral songs, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't go around eating and drinking, and you say, he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man, a title that Jesus used to refer to himself, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks And you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. I like this passage because rather than simply saying, don't judge, it describes the kind of judgment that is problematic. We have to make judgments all the time. For example, we know that we're supposed to love our neighbor What does it mean to love that neighbor when he's using noisy power tools at 6 a.m. on a Sunday? To decide what to do, I must judge between my various options. Which projects should I try to get done on my upcoming staycation? Or should I take the better job that involves a longer commute? All of these require judgment. So judgment per se isn't a bad thing. But in this episode that Luke records, it's a different kind of judgment that is being exercised. Jesus describes the Pharisees as, well, hard to please. They didn't like John the Baptist because he was better at fasting than they were, and they criticized Jesus because he doesn't fast nearly as much as they do. The thing that I notice in this passage is that the religious folks weren't judging against some objective standard— They were using themselves as the standard. So anything that was too different from them was wrong, was bad. And their aim was to exclude and feel superior to others. They had a convenient heuristic that saved them any mental energy in deciding who to accept and who to reject. In the story that immediately follows this text, Jesus is at dinner at the house of a Pharisee. And a sinful woman comes and anoints his feet. Jesus tells an apt parable and then looks at Simon, the host, and says, Do you see this woman? Of course he sees her. Everyone in the room sees her and has been made uncomfortable by her extravagant worship. They can barely taste their food over the stench of the perfume but at another level, Simon hasn't seen her at all. His heuristic allowed him to reject her after a first glance that lasted less than a second. This is the kind of judgment that Jesus warns against, a judgment that classifies and rejects. In Luke's record of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, the instruction to judge not comes right after the instructions about unconditional love. Jesus says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you, love your enemies, do good to them. And if you've got that message now, don't judge. In other words, Jesus says we're not to judge who we will love and who we won't. We are to love. This is the unconditional love of God for us, and it is the love that we are to extend to others. The parable of the Good Samaritan also explores these ideas. Jesus encounters a lawyer who asks him what he must do to enter the life of the ages. Jesus throws it back at him and asks what the law says. He rightly replies to love God and love neighbor. But then he makes the mistake of asking, but who is my neighbor? It seems he's instinctively trying to narrow the field of those he has to love. Hopefully, people quite like him. In response, Jesus tells the story of a guy who gets mugged and left for dead on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. A priest and a Levite briefly glance at the beaten up man and pass by on the other side. Whatever their reasoning, whatever heuristic they use, they judge the guy in the ditch to not be worthy of their attention. But then Jesus introduces a despised Samaritan into the story who crosses to the road to where he can really see the man in the ditch. Then he tenderly cares for him at his own expense. And a Samaritan who illustrates Jesus' point that we are to love and not to judge. Our safety first Reflex may make us think that we should judge before t- taking the risk of extending love to others. But in the context of instructions to love both neighbor and enemy, Jesus says we are not to judge, we are to love. Here we get into some difficulty with language, because we do need to be prudent, exercise good judgment, and often set and maintain careful boundaries. But we are not to judge them in the sense of shaming excluding or writing them off. Our stance is to be love. Sometimes I think we should do a series titled Things People Think Jesus Said, But He Didn't. I recall one of our kids in a not very connected to God season referencing that thing Jesus said, you know, about how God helps those who help themselves. Uh, Nope, Jesus did not say that. But if we did that sermon series, Things People Think Jesus Said But He Didn't, another good topic would be that we are to love the sinner but hate the sin. Jesus did not say that either. He said we are to love people, period. It's not our job to ferret out, judge, and hate their sin. Brian Zahn says that we are what we are to do is love the sinner and hate our own sin. I like that. But in any case, we are not taught by Jesus to hate other people's sin. We are not, on one hand, to congratulate ourselves when we manage to accept this sinful person, while, with the other hand, we are keeping a tally of all their behaviors that we hate, their shortcomings that annoy us, their bad choices that we see will lead to disaster. Most people who we treat that way have a pretty good spidey sense for the condescension that underlies it, and it sure doesn't feel like love to them. One of the things I really enjoyed about Aaron's message about non attachment from a couple of weeks ago was how he broadened the scope of it. A very narrow reading of non attachment would focus on our relationship with money, that we should not be greedy. But Aaron busted the walls out on that one. Non-attachment also meant not being attached to our negative narratives. It isn't enough to be free from the attachment to money that contemporary society constantly reinforces. We need to let go of our attachment to things and grudges, to cherished possessions and curated injustices. It's much bigger than just our loonies and our toonies. Similarly, when we think of non-judgment, it's more than simply not rejecting folks who don't fit into our narrow good-bad heuristic. It's more than simply not judging the specific behaviors of those we find problematic but whom we've grudgingly chosen to accept. It's not to judge, period. It's not to judge circumstances or situations as good or bad, but to stay open, to stay curious. Here I am reminded of Alan Watt's story of the Chinese farmer that Aaron likes to tell. For those who haven't heard it, this is how it goes. Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all of his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we are so sorry to hear your horse has run away. This is most unfortunate. The farmer said, maybe. The next day, the horse came back bringing seven wild horses with it. And in the evening, everybody came back and said, oh, now you have eight horses. What a great turn of events. The farmer again said, maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of the horses, and while riding it, he was thrown and broke his leg. The neighbors then said, oh dear, that's too bad. And the farmer responded, maybe. The next day, The conscription officers came around to conscript people into the army, and they rejected his son because of the broken leg. And again, all the neighbors came around and said, isn't that great? Again, the farmer said, maybe. When our younger daughter, Anna, was home from Vancouver Vancouver Island last Christmas, She had booked a cheap but complicated trip back, several stops and the need to coordinate with the ferry, and she was going to be getting home well after midnight and working the next day. So she decided on one leg of the flight to pay for an upgrade and get a seat where she'd be able to sleep. When she got to the plane, she found that they had given her seat to someone else and had no interest in giving her a refund. She skulked her way to the back of the cabin, fuming all the way. But Anna's a positive person, and she'd had a great Christmas, so she soon started chatting with her seatmate. Long story short, the seatmate's destination was very close to Anna's. She had a car at the Vancouver airport, and the ride she offered Anna ended up cutting off about three hours of travel time. It'd be easy to judge the airline as terrible, terrible for double booking the seat, because at that point she had no way of knowing the good that could come from it. I fear that I, as an introvert, would have given my strong don't want to talk vibes to my seatmate and nursed my judgment of the airline for the whole trip. Several years ago, I was talking with a consultant about my judginess, a trait that made me a rigorous scientist, but wasn't particularly helping me be effective with people. She said that the real problem with making a judgment is that once we've done that, our curiosity is turned off. According to her, judgment and curiosity are mutually exclusive. But curiosity is the very resource we need to find a better way forward. That's one of the things I love about Alan Watt's story. The Chinese farmer stays curious. He refuses to get dragged into the premature celebration or premature despair of his neighbors. He stays curious. To go back to the example that I used earlier of a neighbor using noisy power tools early on a Sunday morning, my instinct may be to judge him as a selfish, insensitive jerk. We may be tempted to channel our inner queen of hearts from Alice in Wonderland, who had only one way of settling all difficulties, great or small. Off with his head, she would say, without even looking around. But what would it mean to stay curious with my noisy neighbor? It certainly would mean to entertain other possibilities. Maybe his wife has had a stroke and he needs to get a wheelchair ramp done to the back door because they are discharging her from hospital tomorrow. Maybe he had forgotten he'd promised his kid or grandkid a piece of playground equipment for their birthday party this afternoon. Maybe staying curious is taking a cup of coffee over and finding out if I can help. Or or maybe he really is just a grumpy curmudgeon who doesn't care if he's disturbing his neighbors. Surely that would give us ground for judging him. I'm with you. But I think it also invites us to stay curious. What toxic experiences in his past have made him into a curmudgeon? has he ever been accepted into a community that cared about him and motivated him to care about them? And if he is that guarded and unsociable, how isolated and lonely is his life? I'm not suggesting that we invite him over for dinner, remember boundaries, but we can set down our judgment gavel for a few minutes long enough to see that he is more than a cartoon of his worst behavior on his worst day, long enough to see that maybe he's doing the best he can. And if I can do that, if I can stay that curious, then I'm actually loving my neighbor. I am so thankful that God doesn't jump to premature judgment about me. Sometimes I feel as though I am very much straying like a lost sheep. But Jesus stays curious about me. He offers encouragement and reminds me that I am loved. And in that sunshine, I dare to hope that I may do better tomorrow.